I'm Bob Walker. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Life Church. And I would like you to keep your uh, Bibles open to Galatians chapter 3. Together, we're going to be studying a passage that brings us to the crux. I'm getting hand signals from the back that I'm having a hard time interpreting. We're hoping a reset was everything I needed to do. The set, six and sevens left, so it's not that this time. I, th- I felt like everybody was working hard just to make sure the six and sevens got out of here. Okay, I'm adjusting the mic. Everything's on. Here we go. Together, we're going to be studying a passage that brings us to the crux of Paul's letter. This passage sums up the entirety of Paul's message in all his epistles. In fact... This passage is at the center of the message of the entire Bible. This passage teaches us the glorious reality of our union with Christ. Our redemption, our salvation has united us with Christ. Every aspect of how we live our lives today is within the context of our union with Christ. A theologian that I've learned to love over the last several years is John Murray. In his book, Redemption, Accomplished and Applied, he wrote, Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. In Galatians, after Paul teaches us the difference between the law and the promise, he tells us about our union with Christ This doctrine describes how our justification is accomplished, how it is applied to us, and the benefits we enjoy from being united to Christ. In verses 24 through the end of this chapter, Paul teaches us that the law leads us to Christ. Through faith, we're sons of God. We've been baptized into Christ. We've clothed ourselves with Christ. We belong to him. We are heirs of the promise in him. And if there's one doctrine that has been the theme of my life, one doctrine that's a theme of my ministry today, it's this. We are united with Christ. But before we really dive into this passage, I want to share some of the struggles I faced in preparing this sermon. I knew a man many years ago in the Air Force. His name was J.D. Dahlman. And frequently, he would speak with this very outrageous Cajun accent. And I don't do accents very well, but I'm about to attempt one for you. So uh, he wouldn't just say Cajun. He said, Bob, we're going to have some Cajun food. Okay. And we we flew together and he says, we're going to take a flight. And our flight was over the Grand Canyon. And so I'm studying this passage and it's about our union with Christ, our adoption in him. And our redemption. And uh, so I've been struggling. I'm just here to tell you, it is not easy being a preacher sometimes. Or maybe I should say, maybe it's not easy for me to be a preacher sometimes. So forgive me if my pronunciation is a little off later on in the sermon, but that's really been going through my head. I would also say, thinking about JD reminded me of uh, something Tanya makes and several of you have had. It's a Cajun shrimp boil, and it's really good and spicy. But part of it is you're 
peeling an onion. You don't mince it up. You've got these big slices of onion, and it soaks up the spices, and you eat those. But as I was thinking about this sermon, I was also thinking, this is kind of like peeling the union. But I didn't think I could get that sermon title through Bryn and Justin and Charlie. So the sermon title is Union, Union with Christ. So our union with Christ is tied up with our justification. It's accomplished in our adoption. It's the basis of our life in Christ, our sanctification. It's the basis for our hope in Christ, our glorification. Paul wrote this letter to teach the Galatian churches the glorious truth of our union with Christ. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this letter to teach us the glorious truth of our union with Christ. Peter put it this way. In Christ, in our union with Christ, we have been granted everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, a few weeks ago, we saw how Paul spoke of the same thing that he repeats at the end of our passage. And just remember Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me. And gave himself up for me. So let's pray to the Lord now for help in understanding this passage and help in living out this passage. Heavenly Father, we are in you. If we have believed in you, if we have trusted in you, we are in you. You've set your love upon us. You have saved us. And you are purifying us even now. You are sanctifying us, and we need you. We cannot do this on our own. We are a sinful people living in sinful flesh. We sin against one another, but you are a loving God. You've placed us in Christ. You have the promises you give to Christ. You have given to us in him, and so we thank you for that. We need your help. We ask your help in understanding this passage this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start this morning by making sure we understand this passage in the context of what Paul had written before this section of his letter. This passage is part of Paul's larger argument against the teaching of the Judaizers. So we'll briefly review how Paul got to Galatians 3, 15 through 29 by looking at Galatians 1, 1 through 3, 14. And after we have that introduction, we're going to divide our passage into four major categories, all relating to the promise and the law. And so those four categories will be our four points. So our first point is how our inheritance relates to the promise and to the law. Our inheritance relates to the promise and to the law. And then second, we're going to answer the question, why the law? Why the law? The third point is just, will just contain Paul's two illustrations of the law. Paul tells us what the law is about with two illustrations. And that's our third point. And the last point is the promise fulfilled. The promise fulfilled, which is our adoption, our union with Christ. So first, the context. How did Paul get to Galatians chapter 3, 
15 through 29. And I know this is a reminder, and I'll go through it briefly, but it's important to understand this passage. Paul's writing this letter in response to men who have come after him to the churches of Galatia and taught that it is necessary for Christians to obey some of the Jewish laws in order to be the people of God. They also questioned Paul's authority. Does Paul even have the authority to teach you? Does he have the authority to teach the gospel? In this letter, Paul reproves the Galatian churches for listening to the Judaizers, and he rebukes the Judaizers for teaching a false gospel. Paul began the letter by confirming his apostleship. He was appointed by God through Christ and not appointed an apostle by man. Paul wrote that the Judaizers' message was a perversion of the true gospel. And then he described his conversion and calling by Jesus Christ himself, as well as his commission to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. In chapter 2 of Galatians, Paul demonstrated that the gospel he taught was confirmed by the leaders of the Jerusalem church, the same leaders the Judaizers claimed to represent. Paul's authority and gospel message was confirmed in Paul's confrontation with Peter in Antioch. In chapter 3, Paul taught us that righteousness comes through faith, that we receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That was chapter 3, verse 14. Now, in chapter 3, verse 15 through 29, Paul explains the promise and the promise's relationship to the law. And then he ends this message pointing us squarely toward the promise and how it is fulfilled in our union with Christ. So point one, how our inheritance relates to the promise and to the law. Verses 15 through 18. Verse 15, brethren. And here's our first indication that this passage is set apart from the rest of the letter. Brethren, as opposed to the terse greeting in chapter 1, verse 2, to the churches of Galatia. Or even the warmer sentiment in chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians. Verse 15 begins, brethren. This greeting is loving. It's conciliatory. It's poignantly appropriate considering Paul is talking about the Galatians and us being sons together in Christ later in verse 26. Let's read further. I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So Paul is teaching us about God's promise and God's law using an example from contract law that's apparently familiar to the Galatian believers. Paul shows that even if the promise and the law were merely of human origins, following human laws, the promise is still in force and unaffected by the law that came later through a mediator. So covenant literally refers to a thing placed between two parties, which both parties are obligated to obey or fulfill, like a contract. You and I can be strangers, but we can both become parties to a contract that creates a relationship between us and obligates us to fulfill the duties of the contract. Once the contract has been ratified, once the contract is enforced, neither party can set it aside, can ignore the provisions of the contract. Neither party can add conditions to the contract. So let's say you and I have a contract. You promise to pay me a million dollars, 
and I promise to build you a house in South Tampa with two bedrooms and two bathrooms. <laughs> I really didn't think that would be funny. So <laughs> that's just South Tampa. When I build the house, you can't decide to take possession of it and not pay me, not fulfill your contract, your covenant obligations. And I can't build you a one-bathroom house and then ask for more money to add the second bathroom. We all know contracts just don't work that way. Once we understand this, Paul takes us to verse 16. and Read with me. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What were the promises spoken to Abraham? Turn to Genesis 12. And read verses 1 through 3 with me. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And they're displayed for us. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The promises spoken to Abraham were that God would make him a great nation and God will bless him. This promise was made to Abraham and his seed, his offspring. And Paul's making a technical linguistic argument, which incidentally teaches us the plenary verbal inspiration of the scriptures, meaning the individual words in which the message was delivered or written down were divinely chosen. His linguistic argument is that the promise delivered to Abraham was to be fulfilled in one person, one seed, a single offspring of Abraham. This is very good news to you if you are that single offspring that the promise is fulfilled in. If you are not that offspring, not so great news, at least at first blush. And who is this seed, this offspring? Verse 16 tells us it is Christ. Read what the Old Testament says. And the ESV translates this a little better, so I will be using the ESV translation for the next three verses. Genesis 12, 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, which had appeared to him. Genesis 13, 15. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And then Genesis 24, 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So go back to Galatians 3. Verse 17, what I am saying is this. That's Paul's way of saying, in other words. Paul's commentary on verse 16 is verse 17. And verse 17 explains the implications of verse 16. These promises in Genesis 12 and repeated multiple times through Genesis 24 and then elsewhere through the Bible, these promises came 430 years before the law. The promises will be fulfilled with or without the law. There was already a promise, a type of covenant. Laws established 430 years later do not invalidate the covenant 
previously ratified by God. Let's read verse 17. What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Now, the law is good. The law serves an important purpose. But remember Paul's example from even human covenants? The law cannot add anything to the promise. It's separate from the promised blessings to the offspring of Abraham. Who ratified this covenant with Abraham and his offspring? Who enforces it? It's the almighty God himself. God established this covenant and it will not be broken. It will not be added to. It will be fulfilled. Verse 18. More commentary on verse 16 and 17. More explanation. Here's the logical outcome of this explanation. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. The inheritance that Galatians are counting on is based not on the law, but on the promise to the offspring of Abraham. If if justification, if adoption is based on the law, it isn't based on the promise. And Paul says the inheritance is based on the promise. The Judaizers are wrong. Obeying laws does not earn a relationship with God. Now, the law does not make the promise null and void. God granted the promise. Granted, God remitted it. God gifted it from his own generosity with no strings attached. The promise is a little different from human contracts in that it is not based on mutual agreement. The fulfillment of this promise is based on the free act of the one who shows his love to the other party. This verb and verb tense show that the promise is given and that it is given for good. It is everlasting. Now that we understand that the promise is given, is fulfilled in the singular offspring, and it's based on a covenant that predates the law by 430 years, that it cannot be based on the law because it was only based on the promise, it leads us to a very germane question. Why the law? And that's our second point. Why the law? Verses 19 through 21. This question shows where the Galatians' mind was at. Something like this. Of course, obeying the law brings us favor with God. Our status as God's people depends on our obedience to God's command. And the fact that we ourselves, even today, must struggle against this sinful belief shows us why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this passage to us. We just assume, don't we, that we need to obey the law to stand in God's good graces. I spoke with an unbeliever recently, within the last two weeks, and he provided me with a list of things he does, good things, things I do too. But he believed that this list of things that he did helped secure his standing before God. But if if our inheritance is based on the promise, why the law then? We keep reading. It was added because of transgressions. So what does that mean? Let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. Turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 19, 19 and 20. So Paul writes in Romans 3, beginning in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that, 
Here's the purpose, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The function of the law was not, has never been to confer salvation, but to convince us of our need for it. An old commentator put it this way. Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by the law, which God gave to prove us sinners. Paul hammers this message home in this letter to the Roman Christians. 4.15 says, For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. Or later on in chapter 7, verse 7. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Romans 5.20 says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This passage teaches us not that the amount of sin increased, but our understanding of our sin, our awareness of our sin, and our consciousness of our sin increased. The law's purpose is not salvific. It doesn't save. It only convicts. Why? We know all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, we, all of us, have sinned. John says the same thing. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us, 1 John 1.8. The law teaches us that we are sinners, but there's more. Go to verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator... It's not for one party only, whereas God is only one. The law was administered through mediators. Mediators. Most commentators say this is an admittedly difficult passage with over 200 possible interpretations. Justin told me that this week. He was laughing as he said that. He has a cruel streak. We're, but we're not going to go into details of contract law. I am definitely not the guy to do that with you. But I think we can at least get to the main point of this passage in the context of Paul's argument. Paul's point is that the law is inferior to the promise because it was delivered through mediators. Its accomplishment relied on two parties and required mediation. The promise depended on the I will of God. The law was conditional. The promise was not, is not. God will accomplish what he promises to accomplish. His fulfillment of his promises, as his promise does not depend upon our obedience. The law was very much a matter of blessings attached to obedience and curses as the consequence of disobedience. Remember, Justin reminded us last week of the people of Israel sitting on two mountains in Deuteronomy 28. And they were amening as Moses read that blessing comes from the obedience to God and to the law. And curses come to the people of Israel. 
curses shall come about if they do not obey the Lord to observe, to do all his commandments. So the promise preceded the law. It has priority in time. The law was added later, not to save, but to convict because of transgressions. It required mediation between two parties, God and man, and its accomplishment depended on both parties. The promise did not require mediation because its accomplishment depended upon God alone, and God is only one. So what's the next logical question for us? Paul asks and answers that question in verse 21. So turn there. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which is able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. The law isn't contrary to the promise. Why? Because the law doesn't impart life. The law does not bestow righteousness. If the law can impart life, then righteousness would be based on the law. But only the promise imparts life. It is only through the promise that we receive righteousness. Imparting life, imparting righteousness was never the law's purpose. The law condemns, the promise saves. The law requires obedience. The promise is applied by grace alone through faith alone. The law and promise are not in conflict. They operate in different spheres. And Paul helps us understand the purpose of the law by providing two illustrations. And these two illustrations are our third point. Verses 22 through 25, two illustrations of the law. Paul ends verse 21 telling us that righteousness is based on the promise, not the law. Then adds in verse 22, but scripture, the inspired word of God, shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So illustration one is that the law is our jailer. We are shut up under sin. Look at some of the words used in verse 21. Scripture. It's a singular word. All of Scripture together. It's synonymous to saying God has shut up everyone under sin. Shut up. Shut completely. Confined. Convicted of sin. Everyone. Do I need to define everyone? Everyone is everyone. All of us. We are under sin. Psalm 14.3, also quoted in Romans chapter 3, says this. They have all turned aside. Together they have begun, become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Remember Romans 3.23 added, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are under sin. The law convicts us legally of our sin. We're slaves to sin. We're hopelessly corrupt before a holy God. We are under sin And that sounds bad. But the law has a glorious purpose. Not to save us, because we're shut up under sin. But listen to that purpose. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who who believe. The promise given to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ, that new life and righteousness is given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. 
to those who trust the gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God. He came to earth. He lived the perfectly obedient life the law requires. He died on the cross. He bore the punishment that breaking the law requires. And he did this for us so that we could receive the blessing of the promise fulfilled in him. He rose again to confirm that. What is belief? It's trusting. It's relying. It's just believing what God has said. Trusting in that. Nothing else. No obedience to laws can save you. Not just generally doing good or being a good person. Only believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul summed it up again for us in verse 23. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Before the faith came, we're like Abraham. Our faith is reckoned to us as righteousness. Righteousness. A righteous person is a person who is as he or she ought to be. When God created man, he created him as he ought to have been. When God completes this work in making us righteous, we will be exactly as we ought to be. We were kept in custody. The law kept us under a lock and key. The law prevents us from escaping our guilt and from escaping our slavery to sin. The law brings a continual consciousness of sin. In fact, the law shuts us up to only one avenue of escape, the promise received by faith in Christ Jesus alone. Paul gives us a second illustration in verses 24 and 25. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. The law is a tutor. The Greeks and Romans use this word differently than we do. The Galatians would have a clear picture of exactly what Paul meant, and we need to do a little digging to understand this illustration in the way Paul meant to convey it. In their culture, a tutor, a pedagogue, was one who was given charge of a child until that child came of age. They weren't the primary teacher of academic subjects. They were responsible for moral instruction. They were guardians for minor children. They were important. They were very important, but they were far inferior to the authority of the child's father. Like the law, the tutor served an important purpose for a time. The child was basically in the custody of the tutor. The tutor was in charge until a specified time when that child came of age or for man when the faith has come, when that faith had been fulfilled in Christ. The law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. We are under the authority of the tutor to prepare us to take our place as children of God, not so that we would be good enough by perfect obedience. That's impossible. And for us, that has only been achieved by Jesus himself. The law led us to Christ by showing us our helplessness so that we would be justified, declared righteous, imputed with Christ's righteousness by faith. That faith has been fulfilled in Christ. So we're no longer under that tutor. So what are the promised blessings? Let's move to our last point. And the last point is the promise fulfilled, our justification, our adoption, our union with Christ. And I'm going to read 26 through 29. For you are all sons of God 
through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. I'm tempted to get straight to the application of this passage, but let's make sure we understand what this says first. You are all, all of us, Jews who used to follow the law, Gentiles who never heard of the law, people who had a sense that they did not always do what was right and often fell short, people like you and me with a conscience. We know sometimes we think evil things. Sometimes we say evil things. Sometimes we do evil things. We know generally the right thing to do. We want to do the right thing, but we don't always do that right thing. All are sons of God. How? Through faith or by faith or for the sake of faith in Christ Jesus. If you're going to take your place as a son of God, you're only going to do that through faith in Jesus Christ. Sons, the law supervises minor children. It's the tutor for minor children. We have come of age. We're children of full adult age. We have placed our faith in Christ Jesus only for our salvation. For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. Again, all of us. All of us who have come to faith in Christ Jesus. There's no distinction in our faith. There's no distinction in our salvation for those who have trusted in Christ. We were baptized. We were introduced to. We were placed into Christ. Our identity is in Christ. We are in Christ. We've clothed ourselves with Christ. We're clothed not like a mask. This means we've entered an intimate relationship with Christ. Our identity is in Christ. Romans 13.14 says, Romans 13.14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Our identity in Christ is worn like a cloak, almost like our skin. And in Christ, in our justification, in our status as heirs, there's no distinctions. No distinction between Jews and Greeks. And that was a huge, huge distinction in Galatian society. There's no slave nor free. There's no male nor female. The biggest distinctions in Paul's experience do not exist in regard to our salvation in Christ. When we are in Christ, all other distinctions fade. For you are all one in Christ. And finally, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. We were enemies of God, rightfully under the wrath of God because we sinned against him. The law taught us that. He kept us custody under that law until the faith was revealed. We are justified by faith and made sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We've been baptized into Christ. We have clothed ourselves in Christ. So much so that our identity in Christ subsumes any other distinctions we could possibly have among ourselves. So church, if you belong to Christ, then you are heirs to the promise. And that promise is fulfilled in Christ. Christ receives the blessing of the promise. And through faith, we're in Christ. We are united with Christ. We receive the blessings of the promise in Christ. So Paul asked the Galatian Christians questions. And I want to end today by asking ourselves a few questions. 
to make sure we understand the implications of what Paul is writing. So if you're a believer, what do you need that you do not have? You are in Christ. What does Christ have that is not sufficient for you? What do you not have in Christ that you think you need? Are you struggling with guilt? Are you struggling against sin? And you know you, you are committing the same sin repeatedly. And you are discouraged. You're grieving. You're heartbroken. Church, our sins are forgiven if we are in Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. What if you're getting older and you're afraid of what's going to happen when you die? You're discouraged because you have so little of your life in front of you and you're afraid you're not making a mark or your body is increasingly failing you and things you love to do you can no longer do you're in pain you just see things being taken away from you is your hope in this world or is your hope in Christ do you have a hope of eternity in Christ will you be content to praise the Lord forever with other believers in a new body in Christ. 1 John 5, 13 says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Church, if you have trusted, if you have believed, you have eternal life in Christ. Are you lonely? Do you need family that you don't have? Closeness or relationship? You truly have fellowship in Christ Jesus. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light, as he himself is the light, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Think about the fellowship that we have in Christ. Christ is in perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. We as individuals are united with Christ. We are in him. He is in us. He is with us. He helps us. In Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. Because of our union with Christ, the Holy Spirit is in us. And it produces, he produces fruit. He produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. In Christ, we have communion with the Father. The death and separation we experience apart from Christ is ended in Christ. Think about this. In Christ, we are in fellowship again with the Almighty God, the one person who is all-powerful, all-knowing, the God of love, the God of truth. We are in fellowship with that God. And get this, he loves you. He desires your good. If you are in Christ, a familiar verse, he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, 
to those who are called according to his purpose. What do you lack? If that God is in communion with you and he loves you and he wants the best for you, you have everything he wants you to have. You do not lack a thing that it would be good for you to have if you are in Christ. Are you lonely? Are you single? Do you want a spouse? Do you want more companionship? Pray for that. But you do have all you need in Christ. Are you going through a trial? James 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Church, if you trust in Christ, a trial, hardship, is nothing to worry about. Because God is using that trial for your good. He is perfecting you. He is completing you in that trial. If Believer, if you are experiencing a trial, God is allowing that for your good. You can trust in that. Have you been hurt by someone, even someone in this church? You've been hurt by another believer. Have you been hurt by a pastor? Have you been hurt by your spouse? Have you been disappointed in one of those, somebody close to you? In Ephesians, Paul teaches the Ephesian church that they're to put aside things like bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander along with all malice. And instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And then he goes on to chapter 5 and he says, tells us in these situations as we're putting off our old self and putting on Christ, clothing ourselves with Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. If you've been hurt, and you have been hurt, I know I have hurt some of you. Forgive, put off that sinful flesh, put on Christ's likeness. Christ will help you. Are you an angry person? Are you a judgmental person? Are you a complainer? Are you critical? What do we have to be dissatisfied in? If you are here today, you are among an imperfect church. We fail each other. We hurt each other. Your pastors fail you. you can, if you want to, you can find a legitimate reason to complain. There, will, there has always been one in, among this body of believers. But you are united with Christ. You are placed here for a purpose. You are placed here in Christ to edify this body, to love, to be loved, to serve, to be served, to glorify God. Our life changes because we're united with Christ. Are you a pastor? Are you a pastor's wife in a church like this? And one of your own has decided to answer the call to the mission field. And they go. But they leave a hole in your heart. If you're in Christ, they are going for God's glory. They are going to, to proclaim, to follow Christ's commission to them. We can be joyful with them, 
knowing that there's pain and there's sorrow now, but there is glory to God as people are sharing the gospel and, and making disciples among the nations. And you know what? In a few weeks, there's going to be another pastor who leaves from here. And this time he's taking a whole bunch of people that we love with him. And it will be hard and it will hurt and it will be painful. But it is also for the glory of God. And we can be joyful in that because we don't have this, this short-term look. How does this affect Bob? How does this affect you? This is for God's glory. And people are going to, to come out of this church that God gathered together for a time and God is going to plant a new church and he will be glorified in that. I mean, I could just go on. And as we talk to each other, is your marriage hurtful to you? Are you in despair? Church, we have fellowship with each other in Christ. People who would not have known each other here are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have communion with the triune God in Christ. We demonstrate that when we baptize new believers. And when we share the Lord's Supper together, we have help in Christ. We have hope in Christ. That was to the believers. Unbeliever, you who have not trusted in Christ alone for salvation, if you're not in Christ, your relationship with God is based on the law. And you've already earned the eternal, you've already earned the curse of eternal punishment, just like all of us have earned that punishment. We are all rightly condemned. The law shows us that. God's perfect. He's not going to have a sinful, corrupt people in his presence. But sinful people like us are objects of God's love in Christ. Our relationship with God is in Christ alone. We are obviously not perfect, but we are forgiven our sins by trusting in Christ. So unbeliever, just doubter, I call on you. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your own way. Submit to God. Trust in Christ. Don't try to perfect yourselves by obeying laws before you present yourself to be acceptable to God. God will complete your salvation. He will perfect you. He will give you joy and blessings. Obviously, not all in this world. We who are united to Christ are united to him in suffering too. But we are joint heirs with him. Romans 8, Romans 8 says this. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him, so that, so that we may also be glorified with him. So repent. Turn away from unbelief. Trust in God. And then tell me or tell another pastor or any member of this church, because we would love to walk with you, united in Christ. I'm going to close by reading a passage that will be our closing prayer. It's uh, in Ephesians chapter 3. And it speaks of our our unity with Christ. So uh, bow with me as I, uh, as I begin to, to read. In accordance with the eternal purpose which you carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. For this reason, we bow our knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that you would grant us, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. 
and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Please continue praying silently and then